0: So I'm here with Monica Ehrman today, who is the uh, professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, and the faculty director of the Oil, Gas, and Natural Resources and Energy Center at the University of Oklahoma. And we're here today to talk about one of her recent papers, which is uh, forthcoming in the Utah Law Review. And the title is, A Call for Energy Realism When Emanuel Cotton Met the Keep It in the Ground Movement. So I'll start by asking, what is Keep it in the ground movement.
1: Well, uh, first, James, thank you so much for this invitation, and to you and David and Sharon and Shelley, this is such an incredible project. So very happy to be here. The Keep it in the ground project is a coalition of groups that vary in size and across districts, states, and countries about not utilizing fossil fuels for energy purposes. And they are generally climate-driven movements. So the thinking is by not using fossil fuels, by not extracting them from the ground, those fuels cannot be combusted, and that combustion or the um, prevention of combustion will thereby aid environmental, um, it will invade, sorry.
0: Environmental goals. So they'll accomplish their climate and energy goals. So part of this paper is that you criticize the keep it in the ground movement for ignoring certain impacts of what they're advocating, and you criticize it both for ignoring economic impacts and for ignoring geopolitical risks. And so if we were to take those impacts one at a time, what are the economic impacts that you think the keep it in the ground movement is ignoring?
1: I think the movement just regards the scale of how much energy and fossil fuels contribute to the American economy, and obviously that's international, but I'll focus on the American economy. So not only is there the direct revenue side from oil and gas leasing, which are the bonuses that are collected, the royalties that are collected, and this is on federal lands because there's oil and gas development on federal lands, and then there's oil and gas development on private lands, and... That revenue, then, in the form of bonus and leasing is about $35 billion. And there's a lot of impact, then, that is quantified by groups such as Resources for the Future or even the Office of Natural Resources Revenue, which has tremendous statistics on the same. So that's direct revenue, then, that is taken out of Treasury if we remove development of oil and gas from federal lands and it's also removal from the economy if we look at oil and gas leasing on all lands, federal and then private. The other impacts though, not only direct impacts or direct revenue impacts, but indirect revenue impacts. So there are about, we're here at at the University of Colorado right now doing this interview, and Colorado employs about 115,000 people in the energy industry, and the salaries are quite substantial, and so we have people who are employed by the oil and gas industry, and then service companies that attach to that employment. And there's some terrific work out of Canada that looks at the impact of these indirect groups that benefit from oil and gas production. So that is the sort of economic impact that that I talk about. And we can't just dismiss these impacts. We need to at least know what they are and then look at what is going to replace them if we do remove these sources.
0: Okay. And You also identify geopolitical risks that would come from uh, following the uh, advocacy of the Keep It in the Ground movement. What are those uh, geopolitical risks?
1: Uh, Oil has always been tied to international politics and geopolitics. The rise of oil, the formation of OPEC, all of these came for this quest for energy. And when we, we can't disconnect politics energy. Energy is a crucial, it is is something that is required for economic and social growth. And the question for that stability, for that access to energy, which decreases the volatility um, with respect to these environmental impacts, social impacts, economic impacts, that has driven politics. And we see that in U.S. foreign policy with respect to the Middle East. And as we're recording this interview now, there's tensions in the Strait of Hormuz with the recent um, torpedoing of two um, ships carrying crude products and in, in the Gulf. And that that you're not able to disassociate that political risk, I would argue, at this point. And what helps, though, mitigate that geopolitical risk is that we have domestic supplies of oil and gas. And you see now uh, an ability of the U.S. to distance itself from geopolitics because of its own reliance on its own supplies. And those supplies, too, might come still from the Canadian import, obviously of crude oil, so from from neighbors and pipelines, and you've done a tremendous work on on, uh, transportation and the access to resources. So I would argue that the the keep-it-in-the-ground movement needs to keep in mind that there are real geopolitical risks that are tied to sourcing energy from outside of American borders.
0: Okay, wonderful. And it's clear from the paper that you take the concerns of the the keep-it-in-the-ground movement in terms of climate concerns and environmental concerns very seriously. But what you're advocating for is something that you call... uh, energy realism. And you give this two different forms. One is pragmatic energy realism, and the other is philosophical energy realism. And so I wondered if, again, taking these one at a time, you could first tell me what pragmatic energy realism means.
1: Yes. Pragmatic energy realism is first the actual demand of energy. It is what we consume. It is what we use. And so if we are removing supplies in the U.S. right now, about 80 to 85 percent, these vary according to EIA numbers, about 80 to 85 percent of our energy consumption consists of fossil fuels. And I'll add nuclear to that. It's a little less without nuclear, but generally these groups that attach to the keep it in the ground movement disfavor nuclear generation. But just looking at fossil fuels, it's about 80%. And if we remove 80% of energy that we consume, that has to be made up, right? Energy has to come from somewhere. So if we look at renewables, if we look at, if you still include nuclear, those just don't make up the difference between that removal. Hmm. So that's the the pragmatic approach, is we still use it. Most of our natural gas uh, production, or consumption rather, is used for electric power generation. And there's environmental benefits from using natural gas as a form of electric power or as a source for electric power generation over coal. So if we remove natural gas and coal from electric power generation, then are we going to go to rotating brownouts? Are we just going to go to blackouts? Are we just going to disregard reliance in terms of electric power generation? So what I argue is, and this goes to, the, uh, to, the, um, to your website, to your name of the project, right? It's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. So if you want to give up reliance or so reliability, or if you want to go to uh, a sort of intermittent power future, then okay, we can pursue those removals. But if we don't want that, if we want to maintain the status quo, then what I would say is this pragmatic form of realism says we can't do that at this time. We still need to be able to first have enough electric power generation from not from renewable sources, or we need to um, scale up nuclear, or what we need to do is, and I shouldn't say or, it's and, what we need is some sort of concurrent form of industrial power capacity. We need the ability to store power. And right now, we're able to store power from natural gas, from coal, because it's, it's stored in its chemical form. And what we can't do on a massive scale right now is store renewable energy. So it requires immediate consumption or immediate use, or else sort of storage in transference or transformation into another source, so pumped hydro. Right? So we take electric, pump the water up, and then we use that. So it's a transformation of energy. So that's, that's the pragmatic form, and I argue in the paper that there are real consequences to not addressing that in the terms of social poverty, energy poverty. People, groups who are socioeconomic groups, disadvantaged groups, who are already at risk for not having access to reliable power or any power, especially if we look at tribal, um, tribal groups and low-income communities.
0: Okay, wonderful, and so the second form of realism that you advocate is philosophical energy realism, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about what that means.
1: I have been thinking about energy and the environment because as my paper goes into climate change is real. And the keep it in the ground movements, which I would say have evolved even in the last two years into broader demands and movements for climate change and for governments, for industry, for communities to take action and to recognize the impending threat of climate change. So these movements have really grown much more massive. And I have thought as an engineer, as a scientist, that environment and climate change is science. So the rise in Earth's temperature, how much uh, greenhouse gases we have in the atmosphere, the impact of, of those climate changes on groups, on ecosystems, that's scientific. That is science. And science is numbers. Science really is this sort of pure form of truth. Energy demand, energy consumption, that's also numbers. Kilojoules, calories, BTU, those are all real forms of what we use and what we can produce or what we can generate. And it occurred to me, what's the disconnect between these two groups when really they use the same language? It is numbers. It is science. It is truth. And that's what led this path of exploring, is there a philosophical disconnect? Is there some ex- explanation, borrowing from legal philosophy, about how we can explain this this disconnect in conversation or a dialogue. And that's when I came up with this idea of philosophical energy realism is that maybe why there is a disconnect between these two groups, both of whom depend on numbers and math and science and a reality of existence, energy and environment, that maybe it's because we can't see that reality because we're always looking at it through a different lens. So you and I are sitting right now at the University of Colorado Law School in this wonderful recording studio. And if I tell you, well, the walls in this room are beige, and you look at the walls and you say, well, they're peach. We have different perceptions, right? Maybe through visual cortex or however we perceive light and our brains then have to um, translate that information coming in. So what if we're wearing glasses? And you provided these wonderful SMU sunglasses <laughs> for the Colorado um, sunlight, and thank you. But what if your lenses were blue and my lenses were red? And I said, no, James, this room is definitely whatever color my lenses are. And that's the analogy that I use for the philosophical realism. And I don't want to go too much into sort of the Kantian philosophy, but I think there's a really beautiful description of how Kant and the continental realism philosophy looks at maybe we can't perceive truth because we are always going to have a subjective view of what that truth is. The the fact that something exists doesn't mean that our inability to see it doesn't deny that existence. And that, I think, is what I'm trying to explain in this idea of philosophical energy realism.
0: And so it's that there is an underlying truth that we can both uh, ultimately debate and recognize but that requires uh, listening to those perspectives from people who are both uh, potentially disagreeing on ultimate goals but agree on the necessity of using the scientific met, uh, methods and, um, and data to address some of these problems?
1: Yes. The, the idea, then, is you either have to recognize that there is a truth, maybe that we can't perceive, but it requires both inputs in order for the conversation to be more fully formed. So in terms of the keep it in the ground movements, which now I think are just broader climate change movements, sit down with groups who promote energy generation, energy sourcing, energy transportation, and also the communities that use energy, which is every community. And look at those as a whole. And back to the, to the eyes, kind of an example, is this concept of we perceive data and we advance as a species because we have two eyes. And one eye brings in information, left eye. Right eye brings in information. so think now about energy information, environment information. Together, that information is harmonized and we see in three dimensions. That ability of using two eyes having two streams of data makes our world it makes our world more clear. We have more information upon which we can act. And that's why I think these two groups just need to come together to understand everybody is advocating a better future. We just need a dialogue between the two groups and that understanding of of a common energy truth.
0: So, Monica, your piece also concludes with some recommendations for the Keep It in the Ground movement. And could you talk a little bit about those recommendations?
1: Sure. Uh, My recommendations, some have been... Some have been trotted out before and have just been unsuccessful. So the one I'm thinking about is the carbon tax. So obviously placing a tax or some sort of fee on the consumption side of the energy equation might be um, the push or the incentive or deterrent needed to reduce energy consumption and be in line with this energy realism effort. However, as many administrations, as sort of politics has sort of shown, there isn't a lot of enthusiasm for the public to adopt or for Congress to pass a carbon tax. But that's, that's one possibility that I think still needs to be in the dialogue. It has shown to be successful in other jurisdictions that have adopted it, the, the other side is just energy efficiency. So, again, instead of focusing just on the supply side of the equation, focusing on the demand or on the consumption side. So going to efforts towards energy efficiency, we've kind of gotten away from that. And I think there needs to be a callback, whether that's in fuel standards, in uh, data warehousing, you know, all of these um, All of these platforms that consume large amounts of energy, we need to relook at those efforts and determine if there's a way to increase efficiencies. And then finally, I think it's making sure that whatever efforts we uh, pursue, that we don't lose sight of those who are disadvantaged. So making sure that we address energy poverty and that um, we include uh, those populations, those people who are most disadvantaged in this push towards the uh, the next the next sort of energy um, evolution.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Monica.
1: And James, thank you so much for the interview and for this opportunity to participate. I really appreciate your efforts, those of David's and the entire group. Thank you so much.